I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is the last episode of our third season on Asian American music movies. And we're kind of coming full circle because if you listen to our first episode, we started with the film Cruise in J-Town, which was a production of visual communications of which Robert Nakamura is one of the founders. And for our last episode, we're going to be talking about a documentary by Tad Nakamura, Robert's son. Sing a song for ourselves. What have we got to lose? A Song for Ourselves is a 2009 documentary film about activist singer-songwriter Chris Ijima. So Chris Ijima was a musician and activist in his 20s living in New York, and somehow that led him to Los Angeles. And he developed a, I wouldn't even call it a career, but he had a stint um, working with his collaborators, Nobuko Miyamoto and Charlie Chin, cutting records and singing songs that were politically motivated and that were trying to create the soundtrack for a movement. I think we blew people's minds. They never saw anything like this. I mean, who are these guys? And they're singing and they're political. Jeez, what's that about? We made a conscious decision that we were going to be mobile. If we could get there or you could get us there, we would go. So we sang in rallies, we sang in churches, colleges, you name it. We sang. So we were all over the country. I mean, literally all over the country. Chris, Nobuko, and Charlie, they met in 1970. And I think the reason you say that you wouldn't necessarily call it a career is because even though a lot of people were very influenced by them, Chris especially felt like if he turned it into a commercial commodity, it would be compromised, and that was the last thing he wanted for his music. These are songs that are very explicitly about we as Asian Americans trying to tell our histories, trying to galvanize people. And they translated that into the immediate needs of the Asian American movement. Even before I met him, Chris wrote a song called The Vietnamese Lament. For Asian Americans at that time, the Vietnam War was probably the most powerful magnet that illustrated who we were in this world and how we were treated. We saw images of people who looked like us constantly being abused and annihilated. And this is one more that you will not win. My people won't run from your M16s then. And so, for instance, in the film, they have this amazing clip where John Lennon introduces them on the Mike Douglas show. These are two young people that are, they call themselves Yellow Pearl. Their grandparents were Japanese, I guess, and uh, they're young singers called Chris and Joanna. Here they are, Yellow Pearl. Usually, people know very little about Asians. And this is a song about our movement, about our people's plight in America. We are the children of a migrant worker. We are the offspring of the concentration camp. Sons and daughters of the railroad builder who leave their stamp on America. 
apparently while they were rehearsing the song, the producers of the show said, do you want to tone this down a little bit? He said, quote, the housewives in the Midwest might think that it is subversive. And even John Lennon said, can't you fudge the words a bit? And then at which point Chris said, you put us in concentration camps and you're saying that we can't sing this song? And then the director and John Lennon said, all right, yeah, you can sing, you can sing the song. <laughs> but like, that's, that's so amazing that these folks, like John Lennon, who sang a song called Revolution, who sang Imagine, is saying like, you know, you might be going too far here. They are kind of giving a cause for, for people to come together and say, well, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm also a son and daughter of the Railroad Builder. Maybe I should be part of this movement as well. That was important at that time because people weren't, didn't have that kind of consciousness and they were forging it as they went along. And they did it through music because, as they say in the film, um, there are certain things that you can do through a speech to galvanize people, but there are certain things that speeches can't do. And they saw that music played a part in trying to kind of give an infectiousness to the words that they were speaking. And uh, the way they talk about music as a result is so different than the way that we often think about music, especially in stories, in biopics. They talk about how their music was not musically driven. Yeah, I think what's striking about how they describe their art is that it's a vehicle to get across that message. And this is kind of interesting because we know that Tad Nakamura grew up as a child raised by this community. So I don't know how he feels about it now, but if you look at his older interviews, I think around this time, he talks about his filmmaking like this too. He talks about how he got into filmmaking, not necessarily because he really wanted to be a filmmaker necessarily, but because there were these stories that he felt like needed to be told. And, and that's definitely connected with Mao's theories of art, that's, that there isn't really an artist, that this piece of art sprouted from the community and it's for the community. So why are we so obsessed with this cult of the artist? It's so interesting because it's almost not popular to talk about it like that in this day and age. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. This, this is definitely a change of time. If you ever listen to any John Cho interview. <laughs> Where are you going with this? And I feel a lot of people are like this. I think John Cho is somebody that came up as an artist during a time when he was one of the very few Asian American faces out there. So everything he did was politicized. And he came from the UC Berkeley scene, which was very, very political. So he's always very, very aware of kind of the Asian American movement and how he could be contributing to it as an actor. And you can feel it in his interviews that he really feels like that infringes on his work as an artist. Because as an artist, the message should not be the main thing, right? The art should be the thing. The storytelling is the thing. He even goes as far as sometimes to talk about how if somebody gives him a script and says this will be a very important story for the Asian American community, he feels like that's the wrong way to approach things. Like you should approach things from the story perspective first, from the character perspective first. And if you do the art well, then the message comes across stronger. Maybe that's what I'm guessing, right? Like I'm sure it's not that he doesn't want to have these messages, but he wants to go about it the other way, right? That's the complete opposite of not thinking of yourself as musically driven. Like John Cho thinks of himself as art driven, not message driven. I think it's because artists have realized that they've been denied the chance to speak as individuals, that for so long they were expected to speak on behalf of a community. Even if there's a political purpose for that in the 60s and 70s, especially in doing that and going through those motions. Well, for instance, like Hari Kanabolu talks about this on uh, Political Reactive a lot. Whenever he does interviews, he wishes people could just ask him about craft. Everyone just talks about him first as a political comedian. Why not talk about him as a comedian that happens to do political content? 
Whereas this is, yeah, this is the opposite. They were not interested in talking about music. And, and very rarely in the documentary did they even talk about like why he picked certain genres. Was he influenced by certain singers? They don't talk about any of that, which would you expect from a music documentary or a profile of a musician. Instead, it's just constantly underscoring like how the songs are here to serve a community. At that point, the fact that there even was a community and they chose to become a community. Yeah. So I was actually at the premiere screening of Song for Ourselves back in 2009 as part of Asia Pacific Arts. A couple of our writers interviewed Charlie Chin and Nobuku Miyamoto. So they talk about how at the time there was no Asian American. Now when we say that we're Asian American, there's sort of this idea of we're proud to be Asian American, how we identify ourselves. And back then, to call yourself Asian American was a very political act. It implied that you believed in certain values and certain politics. They couldn't take this for granted. Today, when John Cho says, I don't want to be purely here to represent the Asian American community, it's because we know what the Asian American community is. At that time, when people didn't know what that concept was, they had to constantly assert it. We don't want a piece of your pie, we want to bake our Song for Ourselves is about Chris Ijima, but it's looking back on his life because by the time it's made in 2009, he's passed away. He passed away in 2005. So it's told through old interviews of him, old footage, interviews with his family, interviews from members of the community. Even um, it seems like speeches from memorials from all over the country. So you really get a sense of his presence, but you also get to see his kids who look like they were probably teenagers at that time. And I don't know for you, like I had seen it back in 2009, but now almost a decade later, it's kind of like watching something in your 20s versus in your 30s. A lot of these things that they talk about resonate in a whole different way now. Watching it now, I definitely way more identify with the Chris Ijima of trying to like go to law school and like trying to have a family and like thinking about well you know i have some ideals but you know like there, there are other ways for me to be a revolutionary than just be a singer like i think maybe in my 20s when we were working at asia pacific arts we saw things from the other perspective when he talks about how his parents were good role models because they always showed him how they could remain political but also be responsible and have a family part of me was like how do you do that? <laughs> Can you elaborate? Uh, who knows? I feel like as someone who has two young kids, I definitely feel that I don't know if I can be as political. You know, we're in this very heightened political time and part of me is like, oh, I wonder what it would be like if I was childless. Would I go out to a lot more of these rallies? Like, I would definitely go out to a lot more of these Asian American events, but... I, I think you deserve more credit than that. The fact that you put together Saturday school <laughs> every single week is already showing that you no. have... You'll find the time to do the work. Sure, but not not in the same <laughs> way, though. You know, like I, you know. I don't like they say in song for ourselves. Um, so there's something speeches can't do. Yeah, but it's sort of like, oh, is, should I be? No, I'm not gonna get a law degree. But it is kind of interesting to see, like, oh yeah, you know, he ended up being a law professor. <laughs> It's the evolution of your impulse to want to help a community. And he even thought about that way. He first thought of himself as a school teacher. That was the best way for him to make a difference. And he realized, you know, that there might be other ways for me to make a difference too. It's still, he is thinking about how he can make the greatest impact. And I'm, I'm very moved by that. And, and so I really see Song of Ourselves not just being a story of him, but a story of kind of the directions that Asian American communities and, and artists have gone on in these last few decades. So I think it's appropriate that we're ending the season on this film that kind of tells that entire story or, or, or sums it up from the perspective of politics, which we all care about, but in, in a loving way that's you know, like mindful of what artists go through as human beings. 
Yeah. So maybe we could bring this back to Tad. I mean, you've seen all of Tad's work. <laughs> Tad Nakamura Marathon yesterday. A Tad Nakamura Marathon. <laughs> Which was quite enjoyable, actually. I had seen a couple of his works before, but I hadn't seen all of them. I went through Yellow Brotherhood, Pilgrimage, A Song for Ourselves, which he called it a trilogy about the Japanese-American experience. And then I watched Jake Shimabukuro, Life on Four Strings, another documentary about a musician. And then his most recent film is Mele Murals, about muralists from Hawaii. Tad's made films about activists. He's made films about artists. And he's kind of both. I'm fascinated by the ways that his films are, they're in awe of his subjects. And I think for him, it's personal because he's grown up around a lot of them and they've inspired him. Whether it's the Yellow Brotherhood in his first short film or um, the Sansei generation of his parents yeah. or uh, Chrissy Jima. And, then, um, and especially with the Jake Shimabuko documentary, you see like how in awe he is of people who have such clarity about their art and why they do their art and of the craft of doing that art. Do you know Ted? Um, more or less. Like if, if he saw me at a party, I don't think he'd recognize me. <laughs> if he said, okay, if no, he said just... my full name, he'll probably be like, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> if you said Brian from the San Diego Asian Film Festival, he'll definitely know. Is he generally a positive person? Yeah. I, I mean, as far as I can tell. He's very laid back. Having had my Ted Nakamura-thon, that's kind of the impression I get of him. Uh-huh. Wow, look at this cool thing, this cool thing, this cool thing. And then here are some struggles. But here are some more cool things. And thank you to everyone in our community who's lifted us. And then look at the circle of life. And he's part of that circle. Did you watch his films chronologically? I did not. Because I actually watched his films chronologically. I watched Yellow Brotherhood. I first watched it um, because there are a bunch of Taiwanese documentary students who were coming to UCLA because there was an exchange program between that program in Taiwan and ethnocommunications in UCLA, which um, Robert Nakamura was the director of at that time. So these Taiwanese documentary filmmakers brought their works, and then Ethnocommunications showed Yellow Brotherhood. And it was, like, it was so jarring how different the documentary styles were. In Taiwan, it was very unpolished. It was really about trying to capture difficult questions and, and, and allowing a lot of the uncertainty in responses and in asking questions to remain in the film. Whereas Yellow Brotherhood is so clean. It's so straightforward, but I don't mean that as a critique, but uh, straightforward as in like it has clarity about in this section, I'm going to accomplish this. Now I'm going to accomplish this. Now I'm going to tell this part of the story. There's going to be an arc. It's very stylized. He likes to edit to the beat. It's got a hip hop soundtrack. And that moment for me has always shaped the way I think of Tad's work, especially in these early years. You know, I, th- I thought of him as kind of a stylized director, if even a little bit showy in his MTV-ness. Yeah, well, Yellow Brotherhood, I think, was made when he was in college. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like, I would make a movie that way in college. <laughs> uh, I don't want to downgrade that or downplay that because I think that it's also part of what makes these films so personal is that you can tell that he really wants to connect what happened to Asian Americans in the past with what he feels as a person coming of age in the 90s and 2000s. So he yeah. definitely wants to update the aesthetic. I think what made Pilgrimage so stirring when it first came out was that there had been so many films about the camps. And suddenly there was this film that had a brand new energy to it, a youthful energy. And I think that's what made it so fresh and what made people notice that, oh, this guy has talent. And of course, he's also trying to tie those stories with what's happening post 9-11 to Muslim Americans. So I respect that. But I think as his works go on, like after this trilogy of films, he really wants to make films that are, you know, they're not about him anymore or the less about him and his connection with the past. And he's really allowing the subjects to speak on their own terms.
for Saturday School, we like to talk, to talk about Asian American pop culture history. But this season has really showed us that there's so many multiple histories, that each episode is a, an alternative history to the one that we had before. And I think that's something we need to embrace as a very, very diverse community. From the Forbidden City, USA, Chinatown nightclub scenes to the later hip-hop scenes that Asian Americans have been a part of to the hula scenes from Kumuhina to Muslim punk to a mock Hong Kong pop band that Daniel Wu and his friends created for Heavenly Kings. And then if you haven't listened to our Asian American music videos episode, that was just a really fun discovery process of different music videos from the 90s-ish to today and how it's evolved over the years. So even though that's our last episode of this season, we're going to have a bonus episode pretty soon. Actually, on the day that this episode comes out, Brian and I will be at the San Diego Asian Film Festival, which is programmed by you, so good work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we're going to be there for a special potluck podcast collective series of live recordings we're gonna be recording an episode with the former executive director of the san diego asian film festival leanne kim and we're gonna be talking about mulan but also nihao kailan which is one of my daughter's favorite shows and how music is a big part of asian american children's programming and it should be noted that it's very easy for you, like me, to have your own Tad Nakamura on as Yellow Brotherhood Pilgrimage and A Song for Ourselves are available for free on his Vimeo account. Just search Tad Nakamura Vimeo. We should also mention that um, Life on Four Strings is readily available on Amazon Prime, on iTunes, etc., and Melamurals is available on kcet.org. I don't know how long it will be available but watch it soon. He's actually still touring with it, so check out his website. See if he's coming to a city near you. And say hi for us, even though he might not know who we are. (laughs) (laughs) Class dismissed. (laughs) We are the children of the migrant worker. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. See you next week. Sing a song for ourselves. What have we got to lose? Sing a song for ourselves. We got the right.